Many of us have those stubborn pounds that seem impossible to lose, no matter how good we eat or how hard we work out. My solution is Plush Care. Plush Care is a leading telehealth provider with doctors who are there for you day and night to partner with you in your weight loss journey. They can prescribe FDA-approved weight loss medications like Wagovi and Zepbound for those who qualify. Plus, they accept most insurance plans. To get started, visit plushcare.com slash weight loss. That's plushcare.com slash weight loss. Millions of people have lost weight with personalized plans from Noom, like Evan, who can't stand salads and still lost 50 pounds. Salads generally for most people are the easy button, Right. For me, that wasn't an option. I never really was a salad guy. That's just not who I am. But Noom worked for me. Get your personalized plan today at Noom.com. Real Noom user compensated to provide their story. In four weeks, the typical Noom user can expect to lose one to two pounds per week. Individual results may vary. The Michael Reed Show. Thursday morning, the 10th of October. Good morning with much debate and discussion from now till 11am. This is Michael Reid on LMFM. Local people have once again experienced uh, the culture of criminality and what is becoming the familiar sound of gunshots. Early yesterday morning, a man in his 30s fired several times at a woman's house in Arthurstown, RD. The man who was recently released from prison is said to be involved in many facets of criminality. He fled from the scene. It's believed he crossed the border to escape a Garda manhunt. Gardaí believe the man to be very dangerous and have warned the public against approaching him. It's believed he crossed back over the border into the south yesterday afternoon, but he remains at large. Fergus O'Dowd, uh, Finnegale TD in Louth, joins us down. A very good morning to you, Fergus, and uh, thank you indeed uh, for joining us. And I'm sure you'll uh, join uh, uh, in what the Gardaí are saying and advise people not to approach this man, but indeed, uh, on the other hand, to pass on any information that they might have about this to the Gardaí, because he's obviously... Uh, a very dangerous individual. Obviously, well, anybody anybody who carries a gun and fires uh, at people or at houses or puts the public in danger is obviously a very serious criminal. And I welcome the uh, you know the fact that the guardy are making known the details in terms of the vehicle they're looking for. And absolutely, it's an operational matter for the guardy, and any advice they give should be heeded in full. And uh, obviously, to contact the guardy if you see or think you see that person or think you might know where they are, and that's in the interest of everybody. Okay, and there's reports this morning that he actually arrived in a Mercedes, but he fled the scene in this Toyota Avensis, this Wicklow Reg, uh, Levin Reg uh, that we've been hearing about. Uh, so it's possible that he stole that second car, but I also understand from reports that. A, a number of cars were shot at or had uh, been damaged as a result of uh, the gunshots uh, near the scene. Well, anything that uh, puts a you know people at risk, any activity, and particularly with a gun, is extremely dangerous. And obviously, I fully support. I saw, I think it was television news last night, the armed response unit in RD backing up the Guardi, and that's how it should be. And again, it's an operational matter for the Guardi to comment on. I don't know the details, but I do know that they're absolutely uh, extremely concerned and making every every possible effort and need the full support of the public to apprehend the, the perpetrator. The reports are that he, he's just out uh, and uh, it begs questions uh, about uh, the judicial system or indeed the system of uh, justice uh, that we have uh, in this country uh, when somebody is released from prison and returns to their old 
ways. Uh, there's also reports this morning uh, that he's uh, suspected of trying to ram guard cars in Dundalk just last week. Well, I don't know that, uh, but again, it's a matter for the guardie to comment on them. But uh, I, you know, if he has done his time in prison, I don't know mm. this person. And uh, anybody who does their time in prison, obviously, uh, they you know they have to be released at some stage at the end of their sentence. Uh, but clearly, obviously, this is a very dangerous person. I don't know his history, uh, but clearly, in guard of custody is the best place for him. Mm. Well, I, I suppose what I'm questioning is, is the system of rehabilitation. If people are are not rehabilitated. Sure, uh, why, why is it that they're being released? Well, I think the first thing is that uh, people are sent to jail uh, because they've committed a crime. The judge, they have a defence and obviously they have a prosecution case. The judge, if there is a jury, and I presume it was a jury in this case, mm. uh, they would have found the person guilty if they've gone to prison. The judge determines the sentence and then the, the convicted person can appeal it. That's a democratic, uh, that's part of our process. If, no matter what you go to prison for, you know, clearly to get you to change your ways is hugely important. But if people don't choose to cooperate, and I don't know anything about this particular person at all, mm. uh, then obviously when they come out, they're likely to reoffend, uh, And that, that is a fact of life. And I think the more resources that are put into supporting former prisoners and helping to get them settled in a community, if that's what they want, helping to get them jobs, uh, which is what they will need. I, I think that is that is something that should be, and I would support that. It seems as though uh, there may be some uh, involvement uh, with uh, the drug trade, uh, as far as this individual goes. Uh, he's <coughs> said to have been involved in burglary, but Stephen Breen, uh, the crime editor in The Irish Sun, uh, who usually has the inside track on these things, has saying uh, that he has been involved in stolen cars and drug deals and has issued a number of threats to a drugs gang in Carrick-Macross. Well, I, I can't count on that, Michael. As I said yesterday, when I was very happy to go on your programme anytime, mm. operation matters and details like that are a matter for the Guardi. I'm not aware of them, uh, and it's a matter for the Guardi to comment on them. What my job is to make sure and to support you in your call to tell the Guardi if you see or if you know where he may be, and not to approach him under any circumstances. And to, 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 you know, that's that's mm. all I can do in this particular case. Uh, and undoubtedly, fear uh, and concern for the woman uh, who... Uh, of course, for everybody, for, mm, for everybody, yeah. for everybody, absolutely. Uh, but like it, that's, that's a, you know, our job is to make sure that the Gardaí have the resources that they need. And obviously, clearly and absolutely, they are putting absolutely everything into this. Um, I've attempted to contact the Gardaí there twice in RD and clearly, obviously, their phone is reverting back to Drogheda. And I understand that. And I, I don't think, you know, uh, I, I, you know, I just think that they're, they're putting 100% into catching this person. OK, I'm sure they are with the resources that are available to them. And maybe we can talk about that in sure. a moment. But as I say, undoubtedly, there's concern for the woman who was subjected to this attack. I'm reading one of the papers this morning that there may have been a relationship between that woman and the gunman that, of course, would need to be verified about concern for her and anybody living close to her. And this man remains at large. As I said, it's reported as well that he may have links with drug gangs and the drug trade. But this particular attack yesterday is not believed to have been linked to the ongoing feud in Drogheda. 
Well, that's a commentary that I've seen in the paper. I, 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 I only know what you've read. Uh, that's, that's it, Michael, on this particular situation. Uh, but clearly, I've no doubt again, as I said, that all the resources are being putting into catching this person and the sooner he's apprehended, the better. Mm. And obviously, if he's still at large, he is a serious danger to everybody. OK, but maybe we can talk about the resources. As you say, if the phones in RD are being diverted to, to Drogheda, is there the wherewithal uh, locally for these crimes uh, to be uh, dealt with head on as they happen? Well, that's, that's a very good question, and I can't get you the answer to that question right now, but I can confirm that I have contacted the Gardaí, uh, and I've left a particular message, uh, and I would expect them to get back to me later later today. In terms of resources, as I understand it, there are 33 Gardaí based in RD, uh, five and 26, sorry, there's 33 Gardaí in total, 26 ordinary Gardaí, five sergeants, one inspector, one superintendent, dirty resources that they have there. <clears throat> and obviously, clearly, I've no doubt that they're using mm. to the full Michael. Uh, and the armed support unit and the armed response unit, as well as the Garda helicopter, is uh, said to, to have been involved in the search for this man. Uh, but where did they come from? Uh, 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 have you heard uh, reports uh, that uh, there's been uh, a scaling down of armed forces in Louth and that many of uh, the armed response units have been redeployed to Cavan? Again, that's an operational matter for the Guardi in the first instance. I haven't been able to contact the senior guard uh, since yesterday evening uh, to talk about that. I've left a message and I would expect Michael, hopefully, later today to be able to get back to you. I haven't spoken to them, but uh, the Guardi have, uh, I know that in August they had over in Drogheda, I'm speaking specifically mm. about Drogheda, uh, they had carried out over 300 proactive searches and 870 armed support unit road policing checkpoints. And you would see them uh, driving around the town in convoys. Yeah. Now there's uh, sightings of the odd vehicle once in a while. Of course, there's problems in Cavan uh, and uh, sources are telling us that many of the unit have been redeployed to Cavan. Well, I I would certainly try and find that out for you, Michael, but I do know, and I do know absolutely, that the Guardi are absolutely committed to tackling crime wherever it is I met with. But in a firefighting sense or in a, a proactive well, in, in, in approach? In every sense, because, Michael. The best person yeah. to debate this mm. with you is actually the Guardi, and I appreciate that the men have been in a position to talk to you about it. But, I mean, they can give you those facts. I do know, I do know that mm. the Guardi are absolutely committed to fighting crime. I do know that there are... Uh, of course they are, the, with, with oh, the resources Michael, that they have available to them. But if they don't have have the resources available well, Michael, to them? You, you, you have, well, we have 30 more Gardaí in County Loud mm. uh, since, since, I think, June of this year. 25 of those are based in Drogheda. We have absolute reassurance mm. uh, from personally from the Garda Commissioner and the Minister for Justice who visited the Garda station in Drogheda mm. and I met them there, and that they're absolutely committed uh, to, to using every possible... Uh, and the, But there was this commitment to deploy the armed response unit to Drogheda, and the question is <coughs> now... To the county, uh, Michael, I think it was... Well, to, think to the county, but the county, exactly, yeah, yes. Uh, and the, the, the question now <laughs> is, do they have to respond from another county to an incident that happened in the county yesterday be, because, because lives are being threatened in Cavan? Well, I think anywhere lives are being threatened to guarantee, when they're aware of it, they put all the resources 
that they can get or that they have into fighting crime. I met with the, I just happened to meet, not by, by arrangement, mm. the Garda commissioner <coughs> uh, the week before last here in Leinster House. Actually, we were, I was with Declan Bratnock at the time. Mm. And he gave his absolute, he was saying that, you know, that things, you know, welcome the extra guardian in Drogheda. And he said they're absolutely committed in the long term to, 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 to meeting this head on. Are, are, are you concerned, though, that if <coughs> there's truth in this, that if the armed response unit has left the area and gone well, to Cavan, well, where there are I other problems, see. that this gives yeah. a green light to the gangs who may have been lying low, uh, who may be saying to themselves, it's a free-for-all again? Well, Michael, that's what you've been told, right? And I respect that you've been told that, absolutely. I haven't been told that. I'm trying to get the answer for you, but I have no doubt that wherever the armed response unit is needed, it is there. And there's absolutely clear evidence that you had 870 armed patrols in Drogheda uh, since operational status began with the armed response unit present. Uh, and that's a fact. So the mm. other fact is the guardies should be able to tell you, you know, where they are. I, I appreciate that operational matters are a matter for the guardie, but I have no doubt if they were in RD uh, yesterday, uh, you know, they'd be in Drogheda mm. today or wh- wherever they're needed. You know, these are full-time professional, highly trained people, you know, who put their lives at risk every single day for and on our behalf. Okay. And I, I tr- truthfully, you know... Um, mm. I support them absolutely. No, and I understand that and I appreciate that. Uh, But it it does bring us uh, to the other issue of Brexit, does it not? And uh, the poorest border that we uh, enjoy at uh, the moment. Uh, The Taoiseach, of course, uh, will be meeting with uh, the British Prime Minister later today. Uh, There's little prospect of uh, a deal in the immediate future. And that brings into question the border and how the border will be policed. Uh, The Chief Constable in Northern Ireland has said that his officers won't be policing it on the northern side of the border and it seems uh, from Drew Harris, the Garda Commissioner, yesterday that uh, there won't be the resource here to police the border. Well, I think the first thing is that wherever crime is, north or south, uh, you know, the police are present. Uh, we have more police now than ever before. There's, se- there's, there's 700 new Gardaí. Uh, there's provision for new recruits in the budget for this year. So the numbers of Gardaí are increasing. Well, it's actually uh, less, isn't it, than was planned? Because I think in April it was announced that well, 800 would be recruited yeah, it, and then that was reduced yeah. by 100 in the budget announcement. Yeah, well, well, Michael, the question is, will there be more Gardaí recruited this year than last year? The answer to that is yes. Well, the announcement what yesterday is, was Michael, that it would be less than was originally... Michael, to, the number, the number is... 700. But it was 800. Right, I, but but, but uh, I'm not going to dance on the head of a pin with you over uh, this. Oh, no, 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 is, no, 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 no. There's no more pin. Yeah. You, okay, and I welcome that. I welcome mm. the 700. Mm. Uh, right, as the question as to whether it should be more than that, that's a different question. But there are more Gardaí. There are more Gardaí in Drogheda. Mm. Uh, no, 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 I'm not questioning whether it should be more. I'm just saying that we were told it would be more, that we were told yeah, it would be 800, is, and look, now we're being told it would be 700. Yep. Right. Well, well, look, the figure of 700 is there, and it's a plus figure, right? And that's, that's a fact. The second point is that whatever resources the Gardaí need, north, uh, north, sorry, the police north of the border, the Gardaí mm-hmm. south, there has always been very significant in recent years, very increased cooperation and increased sharing of knowledge and increased cooperation in terms of pursuit of criminals north or south. And that's hugely important and hugely beneficial. While each Garda or police stay to their own jurisdiction, they do follow, and there is no politics in that. If somebody commits a 
crime, they will follow them. And in fact, the issue you raised in Cavan, I understand that <coughs> that there was cross-border activity from both police forces to try and apprehend or to apprehend the people concerned. So there is there is huge cooperation. Mm. And, and notwithstanding the difficulties of Brexit, I don't see any diminution in that. I don't see any any issues that would arise that wouldn't stop, you know, Gardaí from from you know from pursuing criminals uh, under due process in order. So uh, have you any reason to be optimistic about uh, the talks that will take place in the UK <coughs> between the two prime Well, I think I, I well, I think it's a good, it, I think it's good that they are taking place they're taking place obviously uh, in, in, in not in secret but in private and clearly obviously you know there will be advisors to both to both prime ministers I, I am very worried I'm very concerned I mean the you know the, the possibility of a hard Brexit looms very close and it will be very damaging to our peace process to our economy to the to the border counties in particular to agriculture to tourism um, you know the towns of uh, you know our towns in Drundalk, Drogheda have benefited greatly from the peace process. Uh, you know as has Newry and, and other parts in the north. And if that is put in any jeopardy, that'll be serious. So I think every single effort, as the Taoiseach said, he will work to the very last minute to, to try and get a deal, but not at any price. Not at any price. All right. Well, we're pretty close to the last minute, uh, the eleventh hour of nothing else. But we leave it there for the moment. Sure. And thank you, Michael. Thank you very much indeed for joining us here on the program this morning for the Gale TD in Loud Fergus O'Dowd. The Michael Reed Show. In 40 seconds from now, somebody will die from suicide. Uh, 40 seconds after that, another life will be lost. And in another 40 seconds, another death by suicide. And that is according to the World Health Organization, which says that somebody loses their life every 40 seconds. So the theme for World Mental Health Day today across the world is suicide prevention. Let's talk about this with Kate Mitchell, who's a Senior Policy and Research Officer with the Mental Health Reform Group. And a very good morning to you, Kate, and uh, thanks uh, for joining us on the programme this morning. Uh, the uh, Inspector of Mental Health Services has used the day to highlight some of uh, the deficiencies that we have in terms of dealing with mental health, let alone suicide prevention, in this country, something that uh, the Mental Health Reform Group has been doing for a long period of time. Uh, and indeed, uh, the service that is provided uh, to children and adolescents continues to be uh, the Cinderella of uh, the health services in this country. Yes, uh, good morning, Michael, and thank you for inviting um, us onto the show um, to speak about this fundamental issue of the need for improvements in mental health services and support. Um, I suppose just to start to explain a little bit about who we are, um, Mental Health Reform is the leading national coalition on mental health in Ireland, and we seek through um, partnership with our member organisations to drive reform of mental health services and supports here in Ireland, um, or in other words, to, to advocate for better services across the country. And um, we focus not just on uh, seeking improvements in specialist mental health services, but seeking improvements of mental health services and supports across the whole system. So in terms of education, housing, employment, um, improving mental health support in the prison uh, settings also, um, I think that's a really important point to make, that if we are to effectively improve the mental health outcomes of people living in Ireland, uh, children, young people and adults, Mm. 
Um, we need to be looking at it from a whole-of-government approach and that it's not just the business of, of health or mental health um, that it requires that, that cross-government approach. And prevention better than cure. And uh, for a very long period of time now, mm-hmm. uh, you've complained uh, about uh, the number of young people who have been waiting for appointments. 2,440 children across the country now on waiting lists. And... As these lists continue to rise, more money continues to be allocated, but the Department of Health uh, has uh, failed, or the HSE has failed, to draw down £25 million from last year's budget. Yeah, I think there are significant issues there in terms of, I suppose, first of all, that, you know, when development money um, is allocated to the HSC and to develop, to design, develop, deliver new services, new mental health services that are so sorely needed, it's really important that the, the funding is released at the very beginning of the year to ensure that our, that the HSC and the mental health services have the best opportunity to use the funding to the best effect um, and you know that it's not being released at the latter part of the year um, and certainly as you say um, yes that there there are concerns about the, the full allocation of funding and um, not being released um, and so important that you know we are seeing continued investment in development of new services um, not just increased funding to ensure that we can maintain the services that are already in existence to keep things ticking over, but to develop new services that are so badly needed. So in terms of ensuring that we have out-of-hours mental mm. health services for all individuals and communities across the country, um, there's a significant gap there where people are in mental distress and often the only option that they have is to go to an A&E department. And we know that A&E, when someone is in mental health crisis, is not an appropriate setting. They often have to wait for hours to be seen. The environment is very chaotic. Um, sometimes people will leave before they're seen, um, which can often result in very tragic consequences. Um, so one of the things that mental health reform is advocating for at the moment um, is the need for out-of-hours services for children and young people mm. in all communities across the country. Um, so that's a prime example of you know where there there is a clear gap in our services and, and we need development funding to fill okay. that gap. Uh, and the Minister for Health uh, ta- asked about some of uh, the deficiencies uh, this World Mental Health Day today. Were you surprised, Kate, to hear Simon Harris talk up uh, some of uh, the reforms and uh, some of uh, the progress in delivery service um yeah i think you know um there is a significant need for that investment and um i suppose the mental health services have traditionally been the cinderella of our health services and we're coming from a very very low base in terms of investments there are still significant gaps in our services you raise the very fundamental issue of deficiencies in our CAM services which effectively are at breaking point we only have half the staff that we require in post we still have you know as of figures last year 20% of all child admissions um, to acute mental health services going to adult units which is um, often not an appropriate um, setting Um, our primary care psychology services so um, underdeveloped, we have 8,500 people on the waiting list for primary care psychology. 
currently the majority of which are children and young people and about a quarter of which are waiting more than a year to be seen for their first appointment. And then you have particular groups of individuals who are very much left behind. So groups such as people from the homeless community or members of the traveller community and mm-hmm. um, other ethnic minority groups, children with autism, uh, children in the care system who find it very challenging to get access to services um, over and above the general population. Um, so I, I think in that respect, you know, we still have a significant way to go um, and there there is a need for greater attention to be placed on, on developing these services. Indeed, we've been hearing just this week about the very high level of suicide in uh, the traveller community. We have to leave it there for the moment, though, Kate, and thank you indeed uh, for joining us here on the programme this morning. Kate Mitchell, Senior Policy and Research Officer with Mental Health Reform. Now, Thursday morning, a uh, day later than usual because of our budget cover yesterday, but let's take a look at what's on the front pages of uh, the local newspapers uh, this week. Marie Kearns is with us with the front pages in front of her and you've got the Meath Chronicle I can see there and it's good news uh, on the jobs front in County Meath this week. That's right Michael and Casey is revealing that up to 275 new jobs could be on the way for Dunbine as a data centre company prepares to unveil a 1 million euro investment in County Meath. Engineode is expected to apply for planning permission this month for a 10-year permission for a data centre which would create 275 high-quality jobs when up and running and another 500 positions during the construction phase. Meanwhile, the fire at Navan Hospital on Tuesday is also covered on the front page with Chronicle reporting that it is not yet known the extent of the damage to files and patient records caused by the blaze which broke out in the medical records room. Okay, we go to Dundalk, uh, the leader with good news uh, again this week. This is uh, for sports enthusiasts. That's right. Uh, They're reporting on a new municipal athletics track in Dundalk and it's due to begin uh, before the end of the month. Paul Byrne writes that the first turning of the sod will take place in two or three weeks' time. The new track is to be built on the former pitch and put course in Mahavna District Park and the ambitious project will initially see the development of a grass track and general training area which will be used by local athletic clubs as well as the general community. Okay, we stay in Dundalk. Uh, two papers uh, at the same time because uh, they're both uh, covering uh, the dispute in DKIT. You're looking at the Democrat and the Argus. That's right. And in the Democrat, Student Union President Len McCourt said that students are opposed to any external venue being used for the graduate 2019 and called on the Institute's president to reverse that decision immediately. He said that some students have said they would boycott the event, accept their awards in absentia and that the SU may organise an event for them at another time and says the protests are planned for this week. The Argus is reported that initially DKIT had proposed holding the graduation ceremony in St. Patrick's Cathedral but backed down after students objected to it being held in a religious venue. Okay, to Drogheda, the Drogheda Independent, uh, a number of stories making the front page uh, there. uh, And uh, obviously the one uh, that a lot of people have taken a lot of interest in is a, a little local boy. That's right. And uh, the Drogheda Independent is reporting that the father of little Baxter Brown has thanked the people of Drogheda and beyond for throwing their support behind the fundraising efforts for his six-year-old son. Almost €100,000 was donated in the first day of the appeal for help last week, nearly double the original target. And Kenneth Brown says that he's 
eternally grateful. The total total donations now stand at nearly 140,000, which will help with costs in the UK, where Baxter requires treatment for his condition, severe combined immunodeficiency and it's a congenital autoimmune disease which will require radical treatment in the form of chemotherapy and a bone marrow transplant. The little boy who's affectionately known as Baxter the Brave lost his mom Lynn in a tragic accident in April on her 40th birthday. So this gesture of goodwill from the people of Drogheda really has uh, I suppose inspired the family and they're really grateful for that. Mm. Meanwhile, a young lady by the name of Lucy Grogan is also featured on the front page of the Drogheda Dependent and the reason why? Well, the St Oliver's Community College student is one of 19 students nationwide who achieved full marks in the junior cert. So well done to Lucy. Yeah, well done Lucy and uh, thanks uh, Marie for that. Now let's talk about uh, smoking or uh, the cost of uh, cigarettes more accurately. Benny Gilson and spokesperson uh, for Retailers Against uh, Smuggling joins us on the line. And a very good morning to you, Benny, and thanks uh, for joining us, as always. Thirteen fifty a pack now. If I go into and buy a pack of cigarettes today, it'll cost me thirteen fifty. It's a lot of money. If I smoke them all and uh, smoke a pack a day for the rest of the week, it'll cost me €94.50. How can anybody afford that? Yes, Michael, I agree entirely with you. It's... Uh Getting out of the hand of uh, most people now to be able to smoke 20 a day, and I feel very sorry for them, but this is all brought along by the government. Over the last 10 years, we have gone 50 cents, 50 cents, mm. 50 cents, and we've pushed the price of the cigarettes now in Ireland to be the dearest in Europe. The yeah. dearest. We yeah. were second dearest behind Norway up until this budget, but now we're gone the dearest in Europe. Well, if you were to smoke 20 a day uh, at the end of the month, it would cost you 400 euro. Obviously, you'd need to earn five, six, seven hundred in order to get that 400. That's correct. And, and uh, you know, you're contributing to the exchequer all of the time. Uh, you're buying these cigarettes and there's no consideration given to you good, bad or indifferent. You know, we see alcohol has walked away scot-free again this time, and uh, yet it's deemed to be every bit as bad for you, health-wise, as cigarettes. So if you were to continue to smoke 20 a day for the rest of the year, by the end of the year, it would cost you just about €5,000, €4,927.50 to be exact. Uh, and obviously, to earn that, you'd need uh, to earn uh, six, seven, eight thousand €8,000 uh, because that would be what you would need after tax. That's, that's quite correct. That's quite correct. You know, like when you, the, the more you look at it and the more you put these figures together, Michael, the more mm. you realise how expensive smoking has become and you when you when you look at it from the other side uh, every time they go up with uh, the genuine legitimate retailer the criminal and the smuggler is laughing because he or she is still selling them at between 350 and 450 a packet so if you were to smoke 20 a day, close on 5,000. So obviously if you were to smoke 40 a day, you'd be talking about 10,000. That's, that's correct. That's, that's correct. Or if you go, Michael, and you smoke, you go into the, to the larger packs with the 27s of, or the 29s or the, the 30s, 
you're talking about mega money. You're, you know, you're up now close to 18 euro per packet. You know, and mm. a lot of people are still smoking uh, those packs, the, the 27s and the 29s. Mm. You know, they have gone like from buying the two the two twenties a day to buying the twenty nine or the thirty pack a day. Right. So, so like you know, it's a lot more expensive when you 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 go into that element of them. Okay, but I I take it that means that instead of smoking forty, they're smoking twenty seven or twenty nine, and maybe that's the idea. That's correct. That's correct. That's mm. correct. So so it's it, it's resulted in people reducing the amount they smoke. Reducing reducing the amount going to the bigger pack because the workout mm. the workout slightly dearer are slightly cheaper long term than buying the twenty pack. But that supports the policy, doesn't it, to, to get people to cut down or cut them out? Uh, yes, it would. It would be the idea behind it. Uh, if you thought for one minute that it would help people uh, cut down on them or cut them out, you know, I would have to say over the last twelve months, I have seen very little difference in the sale of cigarettes uh, across the counter. Very little. Yeah. I know when uh, there's illegal cigarettes or smuggled cigarettes within the area, because. I see the drop off for two days and they're back again the next day. What are people saying to you about the price of them? Uh, they're telling me straight out. It's getting to the stage where they cannot afford to. They have to buy them uh, elsewhere. And I know when they say they have to buy them elsewhere where they're buying them. Uh, you know, there's, there's 12 people uh, caught not very far away from my premises in the last uh, four months have been brought to court. All one of them got was a fine of 50 euro. That's not an awful lot, is it? No, that's, it's, it's as much as to say, be a good little girl, uh, don't let me catch you again, but go back out and sell again tomorrow morning. Okay, nice, well. And, you know, the other aspect of it, Michael, from last year, when the increase came up last year, Roll Your Own had gone from uh, 6% to 14%. This year, Roll Your Own has gone from 14% to 20, 21% uh, of the smuggling market, the illegal market. Mm. You know, so like every time they increase uh, the price of the legitimate packs, they're pushing more and more into the hands of the illegal market. Okay, and they've increased uh, the price of a, a packet of cigarettes again by 50 cent in uh, the budget for next year, now thirteen fifty a pack. We leave it there for the moment though, Benny, and thank you indeed for joining us. Uh, we'll stay with uh, the budget and some of uh, the reaction in uh, the doll to the budget. Yesterday, Joan Collins, Independence for Change TD, spoke about what she believes is a crisis of poverty in the country, which goes alongside the crises in health, housing and homelessness. Uh, we'll just hear a little bit of her contribution. This budget says, uh, says loudly, crisis, what crisis? I know that there are very few here from Fianna Fáil or Fianna Gael. You're not here. You're not listening. You don't care. And to put, the, put it bluntly, for the amount of phone calls I've got from constituents over the, over the last 24 hours, you just really don't give a fuck. And it's just absolutely outrageous that this is actually happening and people have been subjected to this budget. A remarkable contribution by Independence for Change uh, TD, Joan Collins in the Dáil yesterday. You'd imagine she'd have uh, been uh, put uh, uh, to, or brought to book uh, immediately on it. She spoke for another two minutes before the last Ciancora intervened. I just noticed a few minutes ago, but that you, you were using unparliamentary language, a four-letter word, and in all my years here, it's not customary to do that, and I do believe Deputy Collins knowing you, 
that you're above that and you should withdraw that word. Okay, I accept that, Minister, or uh, last caller, but I'm very angry. I'm very angry, angry when you see people coming through your door in the constituency office, okay. and they are absolutely on their knees. And this government brings in a budget like this. Okay, well, listen, we're not, I'm not going to debate it with you, but all I can say is you're well able of making your case without using unparliamentary, and I take it that you've withdrawn. Okay, and the last Kim Corler was eventually satisfied uh, that Joan Collins, Independence for Change TD, did withdraw the use of that unparliamentary language. Email Michael now. Michael at lmfm.ie Now let's find out what you've been saying to us. Marie Kearns uh, joins us with some of uh, the calls and text messages that have come to us this morning. Good morning to you, Marie. Good morning, Michael, and good morning to all our listeners. First of just a couple of responses to your interview at the top of the show in relation to crime with uh, Deputy Fergus O'Dowd. People who are criminals should be tagged so Gardaí can follow their movements. I think if they are bad people, they should lose their privacy. Another listener says, not enough Garda cars locally, but they can be there if there's a bicycle run or a charity event. Why is that, says mm, a listener. Okay. Moving on then to uh, some reactions still coming in in relation to the budget, Michael. Margaret says, so much for looking after the person who gets up early to go to work. Now it's going to cost more to get there. Unlike our TDs, there's no huge expenses to cover our fuel costs and other perks. Budget 2020 has hit the worker and people of rural Ireland who don't have the luxury of public transport. Anne says that we give out about English politics, but at least they have a real opposition who challenge government on the important issues. Over here, it's all tied up with Fianna Fáil and Fine Gael. There's little difference. Well, that may change if uh, there's uh, to be a general election. They say there'll be a general election before the next budget uh, and that it'll be in the spring, maybe uh, going into May or early summer, as the case may be. A text from Kate who says we are a middle income professional family. We are €100 over the limit for family supplement. My husband has to drive from West Cork to the city for work every day because we couldn't afford a house closer. We pay massive tax. We don't qualify for a mortgage and get no housing support. The budget does little no, it does nothing for families like ours. Okay, says Kate. she drives. He, he drives from West Cork into Cork City. Is yes, it? Gosh, yes. okay. And they're listening to LMFM. I know. Very interesting. Know. Okay, obviously on the internet. Uh, Jack says, hmm. uh, "I'd like to ask uh, Minister Regina Doherty to give some of her wages back if she's so concerned about there not being enough money to go around for everybody." Mm-hmm. The way I see it, says Martin, is pensioners will be the new homeless. Following on from Budget 2020, there was nothing given to us and everything else went up, says Martin. John from Navin, on the other hand, rang in this morning to say that he is one of the cheerful pensioners. We were never expecting a rise, Michael. It was flagged that it wouldn't be increased because money was tight. I heard Minister Doherty say on the show yesterday that she decided to pay the Christmas bonus instead. People who are living on their own got a rise and I'm happy for them for that. I didn't expect a, ro- a rise. Me and my wife are very happy. We are managing grand. He says that with Brexit on the horizon, what's worrying him is that maybe that won't continue, that what pensioners are currently getting might change for the worst. Mm. He says that the, he feels that the increase in the fuel allowance from 22.50 to 24.50 a week was very good and he likes the scheme that was introduced by Regina Doherty last year that you get one half of it 
uh, in the first week in October and the second half in the first week in January all together so that if you are buying oil, you can get it together. Okay. Uh, so that's his comment. He doesn't know what everybody is complaining about. Okay. Well, there's a, a lot of concern, obviously, uh, because of uh, Brexit. It was uh, a Brexit budget or perhaps a Boris budget. And indeed, it's uh, the fear of a no deal Brexit that has led the minister to setting aside over a, a billion euro to offset uh, the shock of such a scenario. Hopefully, there will be a, a deal. Uh, the Taoiseach and the Prime Minister, as you've been here, are meeting today in last minute negotiations uh, but it's not going anywhere not fast at least uh, there was strong reaction in, in Europe as well yesterday uh, to the position the British government has been taking uh, the European Parliament commenced its sittings yesterday and heard from uh, the President of the European Commission who like others was talking a- about a-, a blame game that the British are trying to blame others for the problems or for the prospect of of a no deal. We'll just hear a little bit of what Jean-Claude Juncker said. As the European Union moves forward, we must also deal with the departure of a member state. That was the choice of um, the British people, not the choice of the European Union, although we are respecting that choice. As it stands, we remain in discussion with the United Kingdom on the terms of its departure. And personally, I don't exclude a deal. We are, Michelle and myself, working on a deal. And we are not accepting this blame game which started in London. We have not to be blamed. But we'll see in the next coming days how things will develop. My friend Michel Barnier will uh, elaborate uh, on uh, this. I would like to repeat to the attention of our British friends that there is not only a parliament in Westminster which has to agree. There is a parliament here. Without the agreement of the European Parliament, nothing will be uh, possible. Jean-Claude Juncker, as uh, you may gather, uh, he alluded uh, to an address that Michel Barnier was about to give. He was speaking through an interpreter. Time is pressing. We are one week away from the European Council summit and just a few days away from the date of October 31st, which was agreed with the previous uh, government to be the exit date of the UK from the EU in an orderly manner, which, as you have said, is much uh, better than a disorderly exit. Now, why are we not in a position to reach a deal yet? Well, there's many reasons. And Michel Barnier spent a long time going through all of the various problems. But we'll just listen to his views on one of the problems. And this is uh, the DUP veto that would result from uh, the British proposals. Unfortunately, the British proposal, as it stands, simply has the implementation of the protocol based on a unilateral decision from the Northern Irish authorities who could decide right from the very start, so the day after the ratification of uh, your assembly for the withdrawal agreement, the Northern Irish authorities could unilaterally decide simply not to activate the proposed solution for Northern Ireland. Even if it were to be implemented, every four years they could call this into question. Ladies and gentlemen, members of Parliament, 
the proposal of the British government, as things stand, is not something we can accept. It replaces an operational, practical, legal solution by one that is simply a temporary uh, solution. Now that's uh, Michel Barnier uh, talking about uh, the unacceptable proposals uh, from Britain. We'll hear uh, that put in stronger terms a, a little bit later on uh, but obviously that was not his voice uh, that was the voice of an interpreter Now of all of that was damning of uh, the British proposals uh, and indeed uh, the Prime Minister who's trying to play this blame game uh, well you ain't seen nothing yet let's hear a little bit of what Giefer Hofstadt had to say when he described Mr Johnson as a traitor the real reason why this is all happening is very simple it's a blame game a blame game against everybody a blame game against the union against Ireland against Mrs Merkel against the British judiciary system against Labour against the Lib Dem even against Mrs May the only who is not be blamed is Mr Johnson himself apparently but all the rest are the source of our problems that is what is happening uh, today and all those who are not playing his game are traitors or a collaborator or surrenders well in my opinion Dear colleagues, the real traitor is he or she who risks bringing disaster upon his country, its economy and its citizens by pushing Britain out of the European Union. That's, in my opinion, a traitor. All right. Well, there's just a, a flavour of uh, some of uh, the European uh, support for the Irish position. Uh, and lack of uh, support uh, for the British position and indeed the traitor that is Boris Johnson. I'll go back to some of the comments, Michael. Sean rang in about the Extinction Rebellion protests that are happening in Dublin and all over the world. He totally understands the concerns about climate change and is pleased to see the issue being highlighted. But surely there are other ways of highlighting the issue without causing all the disruption. What of those who are protesting pledged to help with the reforestation projects in countries all over the world? The governments of said nations could allocate money to fund these projects and this might be one way of tackling the rise in car carbon levels in the air we breathe. Sean says this would be a way of being proactive about the issue rather than just being reactive. Okay. And Jimmy phoned in to say that there's going to be no hard border, he said it all along. Is Leo going to come back and say he was wrong again? He should have looked after the old age pensioners and the vulnerable people who are sick as they are not looked after in the budget, uh, Jimmy doesn't think. And he says that the money should be taken out of the money that's been put aside for business people uh, to help those who are more vulnerable as we've already bailed out the banks. Paddy from Kells phoned in to say that they are all dummies up there in the doll for putting a carbon tax on all of us and most of this carbon... gas omissions are coming out of Dublin Airport with a large amount of planes coming and going in this wee country of ours. Mm, okay. So that's a flavour. Okay. And what was uh, Paddy saying about Leo Varadkar being wrong about wrong about what? Oh, Jimmy was saying oh, Jimmy, sorry. Yeah, mm-hmm. that um, he, he believes that there's not going to be a hard border. Okay. Well, I think that Ishak has said he believes there won't be a hard border either. So uh, <laughs> I think they're in agreement there. <laughs> now, Social Justice Ireland has published its Budget 20 20 analysis and critique and what can you expect next year? Well, the costs of living, it says, for the average Irish household will rise by between
between €892 and €1,360 a year as a result of Brexit. We're joined now by Michelle Murphy, who's a research and policy analyst with Social Justice Ireland. A very good morning to you, Michelle, and uh, thanks uh, for joining us here on uh, the programme this morning. Uh, You've been saying uh, that vulnerable people will see their standard of living fall, and it's not acceptable, particularly in the context of how TDs will see their salaries rise by about 1600 a year or €30 Euro a week. Yes, so I suppose the main takeaway from the budget on Tuesday is that low-income groups just don't seem to be on the radar of this government in terms of Brexit. As you mentioned there, TDs are getting an extra €30 Euros a week approximately this year. Next year, they'll see an increase of about €70 Euros a week growth. At the same time, um, just in terms of inflation itself is projected to rise about 1.5%. But then the, the sums you mentioned there between 800 and 1300 euros increase in the cost of living, that's primarily to do with Brexit and increases in costs, I suppose, particularly in food. But if you look at the breakdown of that, so that's a cost that houses or households and families mm. will have to absorb um, as a result of what happens in the negotiations in the coming days. But regardless of what kind of Brexit, they're going to face increased costs. But it's the those at the bottom end of the income distributions, so the poorest or the lowest 30% in terms of incomes, they spend between 17 and 20% of their income on food. So they're going to have to absorb increased costs with incredibly little wiggle room because, you know, those at the bottom end of the income distribution tend to spend all of their income to cover their day-to-day cost of living. They don't have savings to fall back on if you have to absorb increased costs because they're on fixed mm-hmm. incomes. They're but is it fair to draw a comparison like that uh, between... Uh, those who are on social welfare or are vulnerable for other reasons uh, with uh, the pay uh, of TDs uh, because these aren't pay rises that the TDs are getting. It's uh, the restoration of pay that was previously cut, isn't it? Yes, well, what I suppose it highlights is the gap that's there. You, you know, um, Sean spoke to you in, this, uh, in advance of the budget about mm. one of our proposals in terms of welfare is that the reality is um, if movements in average earnings are not kept pace with in terms of welfare payments, then what happens is those on the lowest incomes fall behind and inevitably they rarely make up the gap. So what we're seeing is that, so what we're pointing out here is that TDs are getting increased salaries themselves are projected to increase. Uh, increased by about 3% next year, yet the minimum wage was not increased and social welfare rates did not increase at all. But in real terms, the value of the minimum wage and welfare rates is actually falling because you're facing increased costs, both inflation, Brexit and the increased carbon tax, for example. So what we're pointing out here is that those on the lowest incomes were ignored and in real terms, the value of their income is actually going to fall and the gap is going to widen and they didn't seem to be on the radar in this budget at all and that was incredibly disappointing because um, we pointed it out significantly beforehand how you need to keep welfare payments in track with the benchmarks and the movements in average earnings and the need to focus on the minimum wage. One in five workers in this country are on low pay. They're considered to be low paid. We didn't make any movement on the minimum wage. So it was disappointing. Uh, we've had, you know, there was a 1.2 billion Brexit announcement for business, you know, which was welcome. But at the same time, a large proportion of that uh, fund that was announced is contingent on a no deal. So, mm. 
in reality, the budget it left people on low incomes behind and it didn't really do much to address the challenges that we currently face and will continue to face regardless of what kind of Brexit uh, we're faced with. But that billion plus, as you say, is contingent on yeah. a no deal and will be made available if that happens yeah. to help sustain business to stop job losses. Which is welcome. But what I suppose would be concerning for us uh, within that figure, there's, um, I think it's about an amount earmarked, about 45 million, I think is the figure for um, transition or looking at jobs that will, um, that are probably more than likely going to be lost. So clearly there's a quantifiable number on that. So we should be doing more to support those jobs now and to support those people to move into either to maintain those jobs or to transition to further employment because it's not just those jobs that are connected to um, industries that will be impacted by Brexit. There's a whole swathe of jobs um, that will be impacted in the coming decade in terms of changes to technology and then changes in, you know, how businesses go about their business. And about a third of the people working in those jobs are considered to be older workers. And primarily those workers are based um, outside of Dublin. So we also need, you know, there's nothing in this budget budget rather to focus on these workers and how we make sure that they don't end up... um, losing their jobs and becoming reliant on welfare because we can pinpoint what those industries and jobs are. We know where the the people who are in those jobs are. So how do we go about supporting them now? You know, we have the challenge at the moment. There was a Midlands Fund announced, which is welcome. But we, we knew 10 years ago the challenges that were going to be faced by board and Mona workers, yet nothing was done about it until this budget, which, you know, arguably you could say is too little, too late at this mm. point. So we can't let history repeat itself. <clears throat> Excuse me, Michelle. Um, you uh, concluded uh, that uh, there will be uh, the need for a supplementary budget if there is a hard Brexit, uh, the government said, <coughs> excuse me, that won't happen. Uh, but uh, you suggest that it will have to happen. Uh, yeah, we think essentially it's unavoidable because of the income impact rather it's going to have on low income households. So people who are on low pay or people who are on a, a social welfare payment, pensioners, because the impact to their incomes in terms of increased costs is going to be significant. We had a lot of focus on funds for business in this budget, which is welcome. But it's simply unavoidable a supplementary budget if there is going to be a hard Brexit to ensure that you know, those people on the lowest incomes are protected from the inevitable impact. We didn't do this in 2008. You know, we left those people behind. We can't leave the same group of people mm. behind and we can't leave a new group of people behind again. Uh, and we don't want to be faced with the same problems that we were after 2008 and recovering from such an economic shock. shock. So uh, that's why, in our opinion, it's unavoidable if there is a hard Brexit. OK, uh, you highlight a, a report from the Comptroller and Auditor General uh, in your analysis uh, as well, uh, which took a, a look at uh, the top 100 corporate taxpayers who account for 70% of tax paid. Eight had a 0% or less rate, five paid between 0% and 1%, and one paid between 1% and 5%, while seven paid between 5 and 10%. Now, 
you're saying that the rate should be at 6% at a, a minimum. Our, our corporation tax rate is 12.5%. Uh, but it, it looks as though the OECD is to establish what they call a nexus rule, uh, which would bring a, 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 an international standard and force some of these companies to pay more tax in this country. Uh, and we're reading today that this could result in the loss of a, a billion euro to the exchequer. Yes, and we've pointed this out before with the international changes in terms of global tax rules. Um, Ireland potentially could lose out in the long run because um, some particularly large firms are taking advantage of our, I suppose, the structure of our taxation system to avoid paying tax on that income in other countries. So, you know, we've seen large increases in the amount of corporate tax that's been booked here in the past number of years as a result of that. So the international changes will potentially mean that the income that is being booked here, the taxable income that is being booked here, will will end up being booked elsewhere in the country that it, they should be paying tax on. So tax on that income in. But the problem is for us is that a, a minimum effective ta- global tax rate is inevitable really in the future if we are going to deal with this uh, profit shifting and we need to be ahead of that rather than behind it. And we also need to be structuring our taxation system to make sure that, that we can make up for the loss of this income. The Fiscal Advisory Council have consistently pointed out that the recent windfall gains in corporate tax. They're not reliable, they're not sustainable. We've consistently pointed that out too. We haven't had any moves in the budget to look at how you might broaden your base because if you do lose that income, how are you going to make it up? You need a broader tax base. You can't be solely relying on, as we do in this country, on primarily income tax, VAT and PRSI and corporation tax to make up a large proportion of the revenue you generate. You have to broaden your base. We didn't really do that in the budget, which was really disappointing. And it's an issue that doesn't necessarily get the attention it deserves, I would argue, because it it will impact on Ireland in the long run. Okay, perhaps to some extent uh, the increase in uh, the carbon tax has broadened uh, that base Mm -hmm. uh, and there's been a lot of criticism of uh, the carbon tax as a regressive tax because it penalises those uh, who cannot uh, afford to buy a a new car or to retrofit their homes or buy a new home or whatever it is. So it's the poor people who end up paying this as a tax, as a way of raising revenue for the government for God knows what. Uh, But Social Justice Ireland has welcomed the carbon tax. In fact, instead of it being increased by six euro a tonne, you've said that it should have been increased by 10 euro a tonne. Our proposal was actually 10 euros a tonne to get us on the pathway to 2030. Uh, One thing I would point out is that this, the revenue from this um, government, government has announced it has been ring-fenced and they actually published a, a list of departments and measures for what that money is going to be ring-fenced for and the ring-fencing is very welcome because usually uh, revenue is not ring-fenced at all. The Department of Finance don't like that. So it is welcome that it's ring-fenced. Yes, we in- welcome the, uh, the increase in the carbon tax because it's needed in order to help uh, change our behaviour. But what is it? But that's the point. Uh, that, that, that's the point. And the 
difference between a, a being ring fenced and changing our behaviour. Carbon tax should change your behaviour, but if if it's ring fenced, albeit for uh, efforts uh, to make our carbon emissions to to reduce them, uh, it doesn't necessarily change your behaviour unless you've got an alternative. And I suppose the mm. problem uh, which we point out is this budget didn't actually provide any alternatives, and the revenue from carbon tax generally won't be enough to provide those alternatives because if you do change your change your behaviour, then it will fall over time. That's the purpose of it. Mm. It should fall over time. It's like the plastic bag levy that falls over time as well. What we needed to do and what we should have done is actually put in proper measures so that alternatives are available to people. So there should have been a national retrofitting programme rolled out, done at scale, where you don't have to put in the up the income up front because a large proportion of people can't get their homes retrofitted because they simply can't afford the upfront cost. There was no move on public transport on how to roll out a decent, climate-friendly, connected public transport fleet. We had a report out during the week is that workers would actually take a pay cut if they didn't have to commute as long, mm. if they could mm. work at home. And the two counties were Meath and Kildare. And I thought, you know, the findings from that were not all that surprising given the amount of time that people spend commuting but we had no moves on you know improving our public transport system broadening out we can go and borrow at record low levels of interest government can borrow at record low levels of interest they should be borrowing now to invest in this type of infrastructure because this is what will make a real difference to people's living standards and their uh, the amount of income that they have you know this was heralded as a budget that would you know reduce some of the costs of living for families but in reality it won't but if you retrofitted people's homes and they had lower energy bills if you ensured that they decent public transport you'd reduce your emissions you get less cars on the road they'd have less transport costs they could work closer to home they would have a better quality of life and standard of living we didn't see any of that in the budget all you saw was one element of this which was the increase in carbon tax and you didn't see the other measures to allow people to make the necessary changes okay and we're left saying if multiple times Uh, we leave it there for the moment and uh, thanks uh, for joining us as always michelle murphy research and policy analyst with social justice ireland The Michael Reid Show. Thus far, the British proposals uh, for an alternative uh, to the backstop for Northern Ireland as part of a Brexit deal have proved to be unacceptable to the Irish government uh, and indeed to Europe. Earlier, we heard from Michel Barnier as uh, to some of, as to why some of uh, the proposals are unacceptable. We'll hear a little bit more from uh, the chief Brexit negotiator again speaking through an interpreter. The Northern Irish authorities could unilaterally decide simply not to activate the proposed solution for Northern Ireland. Even if it were to be implemented, every four years they could call this into question. Ladies and gentlemen, members of Parliament, the proposal of the British government, as things stand, is not something we can accept. It replaces an operational, practical, legal solution by one that is simply a temporary uh, solution. Michel Barnier speaking uh, through an interpreter when he addressed uh, the European Parliament yesterday. Let's uh, talk uh, to the Minister for European Affairs and Local TD, Helen McEntee, who's on uh, the line. Good morning, Minister, and uh, thank morning, you indeed uh, for joining us. Uh, Mr. Barnier, uh, making it very clear that British proposals were unacceptable yesterday. The Taoiseach is uh, to meet with Mr. Johnson, the Prime Minister, later today. Is there any scope for hope? 
Well, I think there is, and I think we always need to be optimistic, and that's the approach that I've always taken, and I think as a government we've always taken. I think what Michel Barnier was reflecting and, and repeating essentially was what we as a government very clearly said last week. There are elements of the proposal which were was presented by the UK government last week that are acceptable and that move in a very positive direction, particularly around alignment of goods. Um, but obviously, as the, the PC just outlined there, the particular element of consent, which would essentially not uh, be like an opt-out clause where something would automatically apply and the, the Northern Ireland Assembly or parties would get to opt out, mm. they would have to opt in. Um, there would be essentially a, a mechanism by which any political party, large or small, could veto this, but it would also have to happen every four years. And I think what we've heard from business in particular in Northern Ireland, but I think from all communities in Northern Ireland and anybody listening to your show now who runs a business or, or who has to set out mm. a plan or a trajectory to have to change that or even to contemplate every four years the possibility of that changing. It's just you, you can't run your business like that. You can't run an economy like yeah. that and ministers in a government, which would normally, obviously, it's not always the case, tend to be in a five-year cycle, that makes that impossible. So that particular piece, Mm -hmm. there are challenges with it. But again, in saying that, Michel Barnier has not said talks have fallen apart. He's not said that they Mm -hmm. have stopped. They're still talking with the UK. And I do think that we still have time to try and move beyond what what are quite big differences at the moment Mm -hmm. to try and find a way forward. Obviously, the customs piece again, is another challenge in that how do you have two customs territories on one island without there being border checks? Mm. And again, that's something that we need to see. Can we make progress on? And this meeting today between the Taoiseach and the Prime Minister, uh, you know, we have to see Mm. what comes of it. But Taoiseach will be reiterating these points and hopefully we will be able to see some progress. Uh, And Mr Barnier did speak uh, about uh, that specific problem uh, and uh, a number of problems with what the British are proposing. Uh, And I think it's generally accepted that the British proposals are not viable. Uh, We heard Jean-Claude Juncker uh, talk about the blame game and how Mr Johnson is trying to blame everybody else for proposals he's put forward that are designed to fail. Uh, Mr Juncker fell short of what Giver Hofstadt said uh, and he said not only is Johnson engaging in a, a blame game but Mr Johnson is a, a traitor. Do you think he went too far? Well look I think this week has probably been a difficult week. I think we have seen and heard uh, a lot of I won't say leaks because they were in papers, but suggestions coming from and, you know, apparent statements made or texts sent to various Mm. different people. But again, we're just taking this as, you know, it's not fact because it's not something that has been stated by the Prime Minister. Um, But I don't think it has helped to obviously the Spectator article and other pieces in the UK um, suggesting that Ireland is... Um, you know, moving us towards a no deal because we are not being flexible. These various different suggestions, you know, it, it hasn't maybe helped the mood. Mm. But at the same time, I think what was positive this week is that Taoiseach did speak to the Prime Minister over the phone, obviously before the, the face-to-face meeting today, and both reiterated their absolute commitment to finding a deal. So, you know, again, I, I said mm. this to you before. And the Taoiseach and the, the Irish Prime Minister government... At his word. Just, 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 just spell that out for us, uh, Minister. The Taoiseach, the Irish government wants a deal. Absolutely. We, I mean, I cannot stress um, how disruptive a no deal would be for Ireland. It has the potential to fundamentally change how we do business on this island, to fundamentally change relationships on this island, but to potentially impact on peace. So the idea that there would be no deal 
it's something that we've worked to avoid in over three years. In fact, you know, the fact that we started working on the possible implications of Brexit before the vote even took place in the UK shows just how serious we are about A, wanting to make sure that we continue to have a good relationship with the UK after Brexit, but B, protecting our economy and protecting the peace process. So I think... So that leak, or so-called leak, was wrong, completely inaccurate. Uh, Spin, uh, designed to to bolster the British case. What about uh, the other leak from number 10, uh, that uh, the German Chancellor has said that uh, Northern Ireland will have to stay in the European Union to all intents and purposes, uh, and that if that was to change, uh, that the Irish government would have to have some sort of veto? Do you know, again, I, I think it's very difficult because neither you nor I nor anybody listening was party to that meeting. It was a, a conversation that took place between the Prime Minister and Chancellor Merkel. It is unusual that you see press statements from one government discussing what another head of state said. Usually, if there is a conversation, we will discuss about what our head of state said uh, and present a press release or statement in that way. So, it's, you know, I, I suppose it's not for me to comment what happened or what was spoken about between the two of them. But I think what Angela Merkel and the Chancellor has been very clear throughout mm. this, as have the other 25 um, heads of state, that the key principles have to still be obtained, irrespective of whether it's through the backstop or some other mechanism. And the best way that we know at the moment to ensure that there is no border on the island is that Northern Ireland would stay aligned, not just in the, the single market, but also in the rules of the customs union. And what so, about that consent know, if that issue? If position was stated, then mm. obviously that's where that's coming from. But, you know, you're commenting on a conversation that none of us were, were party to okay. or were involved in. Well, what about that consent issue, this issue of uh, effectively giving the DUP uh, a, a veto? Uh, what about the idea of double consent uh, and uh, that... Uh, Sinn Féin or uh, other parties could have a a say in this. Is this something that is being contemplated in Europe? Well, I think for us, consent is a mechanism by which an overall majority of community um, has a say or or decides in a way forward um, what was proposed and and looking at it, and it's not specific to the DUP, it's not specific to any political party, be it a minority or a majority party, but it would allow a party um, to essentially veto or prevent whatever mechanism was decided. So say we did find a way Mm. forward on customs, on goods, on other areas, they then would have a mechanism to prevent that even coming into place. But would double consent be the solution? Well, you know, look, this is what we have to continue talking to the UK about. This is what Michel Barnier and his team continue to talk to them about to see is there a way. Because I I think, you know, and we were very careful last week to try and say and and to be clear in saying that this is a good start, that there are parts of this that we can work with and move with. So that will be discussed by the two premiers today, Minister, will it, uh, this idea of double consent? Well, no, I can't say exactly what specifics will be discussed between the Prime Minister and the Taoiseach or how they will look at the issue of consent or whether they'll even get into that detail. I think what the Taoiseach will try and reiterate today is that we want a deal, that there is a basis to continue discussions based on what the UK presented last week, but that there are still fundamental differences, particularly in consent and and, uh, particularly around customs. Now, to get into the detail, that's for the task force, that's for Michel Barnier, that's for his team to try and see how we can progress that. But I think if you can uh, get a political movement on this to continue discussions and talks, then I think that would be very positive. But, you know, again, I can't preempt what they will say and, and what that way that conversation will go because it will be a private conversation. What I do know is that there is a will and a willingness, not just from an Irish point of view, but on the 
part of the EU to try and get a deal. This mm-hmm. is not something that is good full stop for the UK, for Northern Ireland, for Ireland, but I think for the EU as a whole and to not um, to not have a good relationship with the UK or to not have a deal, you know, this idea that let's get Brexit done if we leave on the 31st of October, even without a deal, that would be it over and done with. Unfortunately, we'd only be starting and we'd be starting from a much worse position, okay. not just from the UK, but from ourselves as well. What so, about this report this morning? If there's to be an extension, it would require that there would also be an election and if not an election, a referendum in the UK. Well, I think what the EU has always said is that if there is to be another extension, it would have to be for good reason. So if there is to be an ask, and that uh, we've seen the Prime Minister today has asked for Parliament to sit next Saturday, that's because the date of the 19th is when he has to legally, based on an act that was passed in his Parliament, he has to legally seek an extension if a deal hasn't been agreed or he hasn't brought a deal to his Parliament. Uh, So they will sit next Saturday if that is the case. Now, obviously... We've had these discussions before around the EU table when the previous extension was asked for. There is always concern that an extension just for the sake of it will provide even more uncertainty and, and, and greater distress, I think, to business and individuals not knowing what's going to happen. So whether it's based on an election, whether it's based on a referendum or the likelihood or the possibility that we're getting somewhere with a deal, I think something like that would have to be tabled for EU members to, to, to consider it um, and for that to be accepted. Um, but I think that would probably be the case if we find ourselves without a deal on the table come next Thursday when the European Council sits. But again, this is, mm. you know, we're, we're trying to predict what might or might not happen and that's what we're doing at home here. So obviously this uh, week's budget is very much framed in the context of a no deal, but at the same time, we will have the ability and the flexibility to adapt and to change depending on what happens. Uh, and I think that's the way that we have to approach this in our negotiations, uh, but also in, in, in dealing with individuals and business and, and sectors at home in Ireland as well. And if there is no deal, are we preparing for conflict at sea, panic buying and a shortage of medicines, as the Irish Independent is reporting today? Well, I mean, I'm, I'm not going to comment on that because I would be slow to comment on, on leaked papers in general, but when they come from cabinets, it's legally not something I can do. What I would say and, and what I really hope, we have been very honest as a government and myself, even when I'm talking to you um, and talking to people in Meath and, and further afield, a no-deal Brexit will cause huge disruption, not just on our island, but we cannot predict what happens uh, outside of our island. We don't know what will happen at ports and airports in the UK, obviously, us using the land bridge, we don't know what will happen in other member states in terms of, uh, you know, the day after a no deal, if, if that indeed happens. So we're trying to plan and prepare um, for all possible scenarios and outcomes. And again, as I said, that's what this budget was about, uh, particularly in terms of providing financial support for people, but also in reiterating and restating the measures that we're putting in place at our own ports and airports, the, the additional infrastructure, the additional staff that would be there, but also trying to and and I suppose I use this uh, every opportunity I can to stress to people who haven't maybe gotten their paperwork in order if they are trading with the UK because one or two trucks in a line of 50 that don't have their paperwork coming into Dublin port to go through a land bridge could essentially hold up the entire port and and that's the kind of message we're trying to put out there and we have been saying that publicly I think and and hope we've been clear enough so anybody who hasn't engaged um, I, I really would urge them to at this stage because we're 21 days out and we don't yet have a deal while we're working towards that, there is no certainty that that's what we'll have by the end of the month. Okay, Minister, we'll leave it there for the moment and thank you indeed for joining us on the programme this morning. Uh, That's uh, the Minister for European Affairs, Fine Gael TD and me, these Telemachentee. 
The Michael Reed Show. Are people in Carrickmacross downright racist or are there other people who are downright racist influencing people in Carrickmacross or has the movement of large numbers of asylum seekers into Carrickmacross without any proper planning or ideas on how to integrate these people led to problems in Carrickmacross which has caused concern. Let's talk about this with Councillor Colin Carthy who's a Sinn Féin councillor on Monaghan County Council and uh, member of uh, the Carrick-McCross Castle Blaney Municipal District. Uh, a very good morning to you and thanks for joining us. Uh, there's been a, a number of incidents that uh, have been of concern, uh, a number of uh, crimes uh, that have happened in the area, some attacks on people. Uh, on occasion, it's involved uh, people uh, who've been housed in the town who are seeking asylum in this country. A meeting was planned to be held in Carrick-McCross last evening, but it was cancelled because the organisers say they've been branded as racist and associated with a right-wing group. What's going on, Colm? Well, Michael, thanks, first of all, for having me on the, your show this morning. Just to uh, respond to your initial introduction there and tell you for a fact the people of Carrickmacross are not racist. Uh, what I can tell you, though, is that the issues that have been raised and the online discussions around them have been commandeered by people who don't even live in Carrickmacross or South Monaghan. And on the one hand, you have those who are itching to stoke up tensions and fear, in, you know, by, by espousing untruths about foreigners and crime. And on the other hand, then you have those who are claiming the people of Carrickmacross are racist and that uh, and they're branding them as uh, bigots. Genuinely good people are being branded as bigots. I want to state two important facts, Michael, if I may. The people of Carrickmacross are not racist, as I said, and statistically, we have one of the safest towns in Ireland. So I just want that to, to go out there straight away. Um, is, that, enough- is that statistic changing? Because people have been concerned about the rise in the level of crime uh, and people are concerned, uh, rightly or wrongly, uh, uh, about who's carrying out that crime and if it can be attributed uh, to the influx, as they see it, of people seeking asylum in Carrickmacross. Well, I can tell you, Michael, that uh, my colleague Noel Keelan is on the JPC and any issues or matters around crime that's committed in South Monaghan is is raised directly with uh, those in charge, i.e. the local superintendent, Fergus Trainer. But on foot of some of the claims that were being uh, put up on social media, we met with the superintendent earlier this week and spoke to him on the phone last week as well. And he has he has confirmed that the, the level of crime in Carrickmacross has not risen in any significant way over the last number of years. And in fact, he has confirmed that the number of Gardaí in Carrickmacross has raised significantly over the last year and a half. And we are hopeful that we will continue to see a rise in new recruits coming to the area to deal with anything that might uh, come about. But uh, people, people in Carrickmacross, in particular women, it seems, don't feel safe going out at night. Well, listen, I can tell you uh, from my own point of view, uh, walking down uh, any road or any footpath where a crowd of adult men or even uh, latter stage adolescent males are congregating, I myself would feel intimidated. And that's what people have been saying, I suppose, behind closed doors up until now. But they have come out and asked for something to be done to deal with that. And that that, that appears to be the problem. There's a lot of young men who've moved into Carrickmacross. And somebody said to me, this is like Uchtarard. But after the event, uh, rather than the protests happening before the young men moved in, the young men have moved in and people have become concerned because they feel intimidated by them. 
Well, uh, we have a situation in South Monaghan where uh, private businesses are being paid by the state to uh, put up uh, temporary asylum uh, asylum seekers in temporary accommodation. We also have a situation where in the centre of the town a number of uh, rented accommodation has been provided to Eastern Europeans. Now I can tell you a lot of uh, congregation has been happening over the last 12 months in the town and generally you will see um, men gathering together but there are, their, their wives and children are also living in the town for the most part. Uh, in terms of the, the temporary accommodation the Department of Justice and this government and previous governments have failed in terms of asylum seekers. The direct provision system doesn't work, and I'm sure you'll agree with me on that, Michael, for the last 20 or so years that it's been in place, it hasn't worked. So we need to see the Department of Justice actually put money into the process of asylum to speed up the process and procedures around asylum seeking rather than putting taxpayers' money into the pockets of private businesses who have no training, who have no professional uh, experience in housing uh, these people. Do you believe that's what's happened in Carrick Cross? Do you believe that these people have been moved there because accommodation was available but there was nobody there uh, who was skilled uh, to bring these people in, let alone integrate them, and there weren't the services, uh, whether uh, that was uh, community services or, or medical services or sporting facilities or anything else for these people to do? That's exactly what I'm saying, and, and what uh, I would refer you to the statements that we released back on Friday last week and on Monday this week as well, where we've highlighted the fact we're in the past we have actually, um, you know, in, in, um, uh, brought uh, Congolese people to Carrot Macross, but prior to them arriving at the town, there was public consultation. All stakeholders were brought together, and a plan was put in place. Similar last year and the year before, there was a plan put in place by the Department of Justice, the local uh, county council, the local schools and everything to, to house Syrian refugees. But that isn't happening with the process at present where emergency accommodation is being provided and sought in, in this part of the country. We have a situation where um, there are dozens of people staying in B&Bs in the middle of nowhere. They get out one, once a day mm. to, to get a lift into town to get something to eat. They're hanging around for a couple of hours and then they're bussed home again. And it's, it's not a way of life for any individual. Uh, and you're, 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 or, or foreign. your statement this week said some far-right activists from outside of Carrick McGraws are trying to stir up racist tension and that includes a former British soldier. Yeah, well, listen, we, we've seen the, the commentary that has been put forward by some of those on, on Facebook. And let me assure you that a lot of local people in Carrickmacross have actually contacted us to say we don't agree with some of the things that have been said on these petitions or on these groups that we have become members of. But I also, on the same hand, want to, want to try and uh, avoid others coming on to uh, those platforms and trying to stoke up tensions by calling everybody in Carrick Macross racist. The people at Carrick Macross have genuine concerns, Michael. And those concerns we are trying to address now as local representatives in conjunction with the local authority, the Gardaí. Mm. We've, we've started our discussions with local uh, landlords who have committed to having their premises. Uh, what, what, what about the residents? What about the new residents uh, in Carrick Macross? Uh, is there any interaction with them? Yeah, well, listen, there, there, there's a group of individuals in Carrick Macross who have been working behind the scenes and trying to help and assist some of these very vulnerable people uh, by mm. trying to integrate them in certain instances. Mm. But the problem with trying to integrate temporary accommodation, uh, uh, people in temporary accommodation is 
that we we may have a situation where one could get fully integrated into the local community and then at a, at a moment's notice be moved to a direct provision centre down the country. And we've seen that locally in Cartmacross as well, where uh, some of the okay. asylum seekers have actually integrated themselves in community groups okay. and Colin, supporting groups in the area. I've run over time. I have to leave it there. But thank you okay. indeed uh, for joining us here on the programme this morning. Sinn Féin Councillor in Monaghan, Colm Carthy, brings our programme to its conclusion. God willing, we'll see you for our next programme tomorrow morning, 9am on LMFM. Good morning. Bye-bye. The Michael Reed Show. Ready to pop the question? The jewelers at BlueNile.com have got sparkle down to a science with beautiful lab-grown diamonds worthy of your most brilliant moments. Their lab-grown diamonds are independently graded and guaranteed identical to natural diamonds, and they're ready to ship to your door. Go to BlueNile.com and use promo code LISTEN to get $50 off your purchase of $500 or more. That's code LISTEN at BlueNile.com for $50 off. BlueNile.com, code LISTEN. Many of us have those stubborn pounds that seem impossible to lose, no matter how good we eat or how hard we work out. My solution is Plush Care. Plush Care is a leading telehealth provider with doctors who are there for you day and night to partner with you in your weight loss journey. They can prescribe FDA-approved weight loss medications like Wagovi and Zepbound for those who qualify. Plus, they accept most insurance plans. To get started, visit plushcare.com slash weight loss. That's plushcare.com slash weight loss. Hey, it's Ryan Reynolds, and I'm here with Keith, co-star of my upcoming film, If, only in theaters May 17th. Do you want to tell people the big news... All right, I'll do. It. Sign up now and you'll get unlimited for $15 a month in six months of Paramount Plus Essential Plan on us. Mintmobile.com slash switch. Upfront payment of $45 equivalent to $15 per month. Unlimited over 40 gigabytes per month. Face lower speeds. Videos at 480p. Active Mint customers by 531.24 get six months of Paramount Plus Essential Plan. Auto renews after six months. Offer ends May 31st, 2024. Separate Paramount Plus registration required. Terms and conditions apply if rated PG. Hi, I'm Daniel, founder of Pretty Litter. Cats and cat owners deserve better than any old-fashioned litter. That's why I teamed up with scientists and veterinarians to create Pretty Litter. Its innovative crystal formula has superior odor control and weighs up to 80% less than clay litter. Pretty Litter even monitors health by changing colors to help detect early signs of potential illness. It's the world's smartest kitty litter. Go to prettylitter.com and use code ACAST for 20% off your first order and a free cat toy. Terms and conditions apply. See site for details. When you make decisions for your company, you look for the no-brainers. And if you have a lot of mailing to do, Stamps.com is the ultimate no-brainer. It streamlines your processes to make your business more efficient, which makes you less busy. Mail checks, invoices, legal documents, and everything you need to keep your business running with Stamps.com. Seamlessly connect with every major marketplace and shopping cart. Schedule package pickups and see your cheapest and fastest shipping options from different carriers. With rates up to 89% off USPS and UPS rates. And with the Stamps.com mobile app, you can take care of mailing and shipping wherever you are. Make the same no-brainer decision as over 1 million other businesses with Stamps.com. Sign up with code PROGRAM for a 4-week trial, plus free postage and a free digital scale. No long-term commitments or contracts. That's stamps.com. Code program.